um, the title of the sermon this morning is uh, is the first missionary journey closes and we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 14 Acts chapter 14 from verse uh, 19 just to the end of the chapter into the second chapter or well, not second chapter but the chapter 15 verses 1 and 2 let's hear the word of God as we think about the closing of this first missionary journey um, from Acts 14 and verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derb. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And we'll, we'll stop there. And you have to be on the edges of your seats to find out the next installment, which is this council in Jerusalem. But there's a background to this council in the Jerusalem. And this sermon is called The First Missionary Journey Closes. Did he notice there, as they were reporting back to the church in Antioch of Syria, it says here uh, in, uh, where's it gone? In verse 26, from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. 
the work that they had fulfilled. So for Paul and for Barnabas, they had a sense that this journey had now been fulfilled, this remarkable breakthrough into the Galatian region. And here's just a question for you before we begin. If anyone thinks there are apostles today, we should think again. Because I've read many missionary biographies over the years, and I've never read a missionary biography where you see anything like is done here by the hands of Paul the Apostle. That as they went around preaching, first to Cyprus, then they went into the inner part of Asia Minor, which we call is modern-day Turkey, and we see this breakthrough in city after city after city. Large numbers of people getting converted. You say, oh, there are apostles today. No, there aren't. The power demonstrated here is remarkable. One man who's known to be the, in many ways, the father of modern-day missions, people often consider to be William Carey. And we thank God for all that William did. But if you read about his accounts in India, it was something like seven years before he saw the first convert. But that wasn't the case with Paul and Barnabas. They saw great breakthroughs for the gospel and for the glory of God. So here we're looking at the closing of this missionary journey and what was accompanied, but making sure we're reminded and let it sink into our ears that remarkable breakthrough that happened and that we stop and we meditate and we let the truth sink in. Not least, if we think about what we've just read in chapter 14, that it says in verse 19 that Jews were getting all stirred up from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. And you remember a few, many weeks ago now, we think about the conversion of, uh, well, not the conversion, but the persecution that Stephen faced after he preached that sermon, and then he was stoned to death. Well, it appears here that Paul didn't die, but he was left for dead, and he can't imagine having persecution that stones are raining down upon you so that you're left for dead and dragged out of the city and left there for dead. But it tells us here in verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And what does he do? Does he say, I'm fed up of this. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, let's, just, let's just go on holiday. There's a great beach, Barnabas, in Cyprus. I saw it in Paphos. Let's just get on a boat. No, he doesn't. It says this, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derb, and we'll find out what he does there in that city. And we see the tremendous grace of God for this man, Paul the Apostle. Nothing can stop him from preaching the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? Nothing can stop him. But there's an indication here that, he, that though he looked like he was left for dead, we don't have a record that he actually did die, but in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 25, what do we read there? Paul gives this whole list of all the sufferings that he went through. And in 2 Corinthians 11:25, Paul tells the church, he says, Once I was stoned. Once I was stoned. And that was right here in Lystra. So let's move on in a moment to our... Uh, first heading, but just remind ourselves 
about the fickleness of public opinion. Why do I say that? Well, we learned last week when we got to a close that they were so impressed with Paul and Barnabas, they were saying the gods have come down to us. Zeus is here. Uh, can you imagine that? Well, Zeus was not there. And they were wanting to offer sacrifice to those false gods. And now the whole city are persuaded these men are just wrong and let's and they're stoned or Paul is stoned and so we're reminded as it was in the ministry of Jesus to beware of public opinion our commendation comes from Christ Jesus and so our third we've got three headings for us firstly is preaching in Derb preaching in Derb. Like I said last week, I always feel like I want to call it Derby, but it's not Derby, it's Derb. Our second heading is establishing Galatian churches, and thirdly is reporting to the home church, which is Antioch in Syria. So let's get to our first heading, preaching in Derb. So here Paul is battered and bruised, to say the least. These disciples have been around him and, and comforting and encouraging him. One of those disciples may well have been Timothy, who was from that area. We don't know for definite, but it's a strong possibility. But nonetheless, there were disciples who gathered around. And then what happens next? We read in the Word of God in verse 20, <clears throat> but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derb. Look at verse 21 when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. But look at the first part of 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, um, they made many disciples in Derb. Just think about that. How many miles is it from Lystra to Derb? It's actually about 60 miles. That seems nothing for us today, does it? We can just jump in our car, we can just drive down the motorway on the M1, and before you know it, hey, bingo, we're in Leicester, 60 miles away. An hour, stopping up at the services with the kids, having a good time, we think nothing of it. But what about in Paul's day? Well, there was no M1, there was no vehicle, so it would have been several days to get there, which would have actually been helpful, I think, as Paul uh, would have been traveling down there uh, to at least recover from being battered uh, by being stoned and left for dead. But what do they do? What does Paul, what's his desire, what's his mission? He says when they got there, they preached the gospel to that city. Not giving thought, well, is the same thing going to happen again as it happened in the last city? And it appears that we have no record of violent persecution against Paul in Derb in contrast to the three other cities. It seems like this is the only place where Paul didn't face such persecution. But the preaching of the gospel went forth in the heart of Asia Minor, where people had never heard the gospel ever before, but they did in that time. And so much so that not only did they preach the gospel, they made many disciples. Can you imagine that? Again, not only the gospel having a breakthrough, but then people being committed to want to be discipled, to be baptized and to be taught and to be instructed in the faith. It's just a remarkable 
uh, testimony. And we tend, we're so familiar with the book of Acts, we read this biography, and often it doesn't really sink in the momentousness of what the Holy Spirit was doing. But don't we desire something of that in our own day? The Holy Spirit hasn't changed. We know that there aren't apostles who have those gifts, but, but God hasn't changed, and hopefully it will increase our vision. But we see that there is persecution that is almost all around where, where Paul's preaching. But the emphasis for us here is not persecution. It's the phrase, making disciples. Did you notice that? They preached the gospel and had made many disciples. And that seems to be one of Luke's favorite titles for what we often call today Christians. Christians was a name first used in where? It was in the home church in Antioch of Syria. But the main word that Luke records as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe followers of Jesus is the word disciples. And that gets our attention, doesn't it? Because we remember they're on a mission here. They're on a mission to preach the gospel. But not simply that, because in Matthew 28, the Lord Jesus, uh, before he ascended to heaven, he gave this commission to the apostles and therefore to the church to do what? He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And so I want to bring that word to us again this morning that to be a follower of Jesus is to be a disciple. Perhaps we don't hear as much as we should about discipleship. What is a disciple? A disciple means a pupil. It means one who learns through instruction under a teacher. And so, in the New Testament sense, it means an adherent, a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism is therefore, in Matthew 28, the entrance point to being a disciple, which is part of the reason, because Jesus taught us this, that we baptize covenant children. Baptism is not a sign of conversion. It's a sign of commitment to discipleship. And it's a lifelong commitment. If you've been baptized, then you've... Uh, really have the responsibility to be committed to lifelong instruction. Ah, and therefore, it really shows us here the remarkable nature of what the Holy Spirit was doing, that it wasn't just baptizing converts, but it was giving them initial instruction of the content of the Christian faith. So before we move on to our next heading, let's just ask ourselves some questions about the word disciple and discipleship. Um, is that idea of being a disciple what shapes your understanding of the Christian faith? Because that's the word that Jesus uses, one that's a pupil, a learner, one that's instructed. So therefore, at the heart of being a disciple is to be somebody who is teachable. So we have to ask ourselves a question, are we teachable? Are we willing to be conformed to the truth of holy scripture? That's our teacher's manual, as it were, the, the truth of scripture. A disciple is someone who 
runs the Christian race? How is your race this morning? Are you still running the race? Or are you flagging and running out of breath? And it's not a wrong thing if you are flagging and running out of breath. But don't stop running. Keep following on after Jesus. When you've been a Christian for as many years as I have, and some of you, you see a lot of people come and go over the years. But we have to keep running the race. That's what disciples are called to do. Well, let's move on. We can look at that towards the end. But let's look at our second heading, establishing Galatian churches. Because right now, there's lots of scattered disciples all over this Galatian region. Scattered sheep in one way. But these are not churches yet. These are pockets of disciples here, pockets of disciples there. And let's look in our Bibles. If you look in uh, Acts chapter 14 and verse 21 at the end, it says, now Paul and Barnabas, they returned to Lystra. Can you imagine that? Going back to the place where you were stoned and left for dead. I'd be, I'd, my knees would be knocking, would you, horse? I'd be thinking, what are, what's, what's going to be lying in store for me next? But then, nonetheless, they went back because the mission wouldn't be completed. They went to Iconium and then to Antioch. That's Antioch Pisidia. And what did they do in verse 22? Strengthening the souls of the, of the what? Of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And we read that what Paul encouraged Timothy to do, for him to continue in the faith. And then saying this message to all these different pockets of the disciples, saying what? That through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And it doesn't stop there. It says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Isn't that wonderful? They went back to these churches to, well, not, this, not churches yet, these disciples to finish off what the Lord had begun. Because at the moment, they're pockets of disciples, but they're not churches. We see that the establishing and appointing of elders in each place meant they moved from being a pocket of disciples to becoming a church. Now, we know that these early fledgling churches hit difficult times later on as we read in the book of Galatians, but we'll leave that for another day. Let's look at what Paul and Barnabas encouraged them with. And in a sense, Paul's life was like a visual aid to them. Look at the pressure I faced, almost Paul is saying. Look at the difficulty I faced. And if you're going to be a disciple, you need to remember that you may face similar things. And so they encourage them to continue in the faith. And so therefore, as a preacher, I want to encourage all of us this morning that we would continue in the faith. In the faith that's being delivered. Not just only a personal faith that we believe, but also the content of the faith that came from the apostles. That was the first thing they encouraged them. But then secondly saying, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Have you been surprised with the pressure that you may have faced since you became a Christian? Ever thought, oh, no one told me this. 
It was almost as if I have now come to Jesus that all my problems would just disappear. And it's not many years down the path, and you think, well, that's not true. And it's what's known sometimes as easy believism. You know, I have an altar call, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, and people come to Jesus, or some do and some don't. Uh, but um, the fact is, it's the Christian race is going to be difficult. And so Paul and Barnabas teach them and say it's through, he doesn't say through tribulations, he says it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So that begs the question for us, what does tribulation mean? Well, tribulation means pressure. Have you ever had this question? I get it a lot. I get it every kind of, not quite every few months, but not far off. Kevin, do you believe in the great tribulation? And the answer is, yes, I do. But when somebody asks me that, I know I don't believe in the great tribulation the same way that they think it is. The great tribulation, for people who ask that question, is a, is a confused idea of the second coming of Jesus. And somehow they think that the church will be raptured out so that we don't face any difficulties, but everyone left down there will face great tribulation. And the fact is, Jesus will come back once and once only. I say, yes, I do believe in the great tribulation in the same way that Paul and Barnabas are teaching here, that between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, there'll be pressures. Those pressures will vary at different times. But tribulation means this, pressing pressure. Tribulation means pressing pressure. It means distress caused by an outward circumstance. In Paul's case, it meant brutal physical abuse to the point of him being stoned to death. I was just reading recently about a martyr in the 16th century. Have you ever heard of her? Her name was Anne Askew, Anne Askew, well worthwhile reading up on her. And she was tortured. She knew of some of the people in the royal household in the time of Henry VIII who were born again. And the persecution came against this dear Protestant, born-again Christian, Anne Askew, and that she was brutally tortured. Give us the names of who's a Christian. And she refused to give the names. And her bones were just battered, her body was battered, and she was martyred for the Christian faith. So what do we learn? It's not just the Apostle Paul who may face that. And we'll meet dear and ask you in heaven, and what a joy it will be. This lady would have the honor of being given a martyr's crown. But it's through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God, they said. And we find this word tribulation, Paul, it pops up a lot in the writings of Paul. In Romans, he uses it. In 2 Corinthians, in Colossians, in 2 Thessalonians, he keeps reminding the church it's through pressing pressure that you'll enter the kingdom of God. It's through distress and difficulties that you must enter the kingdom of God. And what's the message? Continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. And one of the pressing pressures that came against the Galatian church was a doctrinal pressing pressure. But it was a subtle one, wasn't it? Which we're going to come to in a minute because we see this false doctrine entered the churches in Galatia. Ah, ah, 
They didn't say, don't, they didn't say, stop believing in Jesus. No, they didn't say that. They said, it's great to believe in Jesus. It's wonderful. We commend you. But by the way, do you mind, we'd like the men to get circumcised as well. Really? And of course, a new Christian would be quite naive sometimes. Do you remember how many times you got misled as a young Christian, feeling, oh no, I, I'm missing God. I, I didn't realize that. And so people were getting circumcised and taking on things that the church were not saying they should do and the gospel doesn't command them. And so they begin to add things to the gospel or take things away. And if you don't do this, they would be persecuted. And so we're reminded in the book of Romans, Paul writes, he says this. I think if I remember correctly, I once heard this preached in a, in a wedding sermon years ago in, in southern Germany. It was this, Romans 12, 12. Listen to this for a wedding sermon. Uh, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now, I'm not saying Paul gave us that necessarily as a wedding sermon, but I remember the sermon to this day. To be a Christian means we need to be what? Patient in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. But we can be encouraged this morning by the Lord. Because Psalm 23 verse 4 says what? Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then we think of another promise that Paul gave to the Corinthian church. He says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. And I have the privilege this morning of preaching an unseen Jesus, an unseen gospel, an unseen heaven, but it's more real, according to Paul here, than anything that we can see. So therefore, let's keep running the race. No matter how difficult it is, sister, keep running. No matter how much difficult it is at school, oh school child, keep running the race and fix your eyes on Jesus. No matter, brother, you're feeling the pressure's great, keep running. Because Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Aren't we thankful for that? He never leaves us, he never forsakes us, he never lets go of our hand, he keeps on squeezing it. Remember you had small children? And sometimes when you're out walking with them, you want to encourage me. Just give them a little bit of a squeeze. And, and they look up at mommy or they look up at daddy. And it's just a squeeze of encouragement rather than a squeeze of stop it. And, uh, and the Lord does that with us. He squeezes our hand metaphorically and says, Dear brother, dear sister, keep running the race. Continue in the faith. There's nothing better than to be a Christian. But how does this mission finish? It doesn't finish yet. Let's move to our third and last heading in 14. At the end of the chapter, they now go on a boat trip. It says then they, uh, they commended these disciples uh, to the Lord, 
with prayer and fasting and the elders that they'd appointed as well. And then they, verse 24, they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, they traveled down south when they'd spoken the word in Perga. So even as they're traveling back home, they couldn't stop preaching the word everywhere they went. And they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed from there. They didn't go to Cyprus this time, they missed Cyprus, and they went to Antioch in Syria. And it says, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Notice, that's where they were sent out from originally. Uh, the Holy Spirit gave this call to the leaders of the church, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. But who comes back? Not Saul. Well, it is Saul, but it's Barnabas and Paul. Because he'd taken on his, one of his other names. And they came to this Gentile church to report about what? The great things that God had done. But notice they were commended to the grace of God, to the work that they had fulfilled. And grace is not something that's impersonal, is it? It's a very personal thing. It's, it's an administration of God by the Holy Spirit that's especially given to us through Jesus. So when we face these pressures, the grace of God will be there to keep strengthening us and helping us. And what happened? They, they gave a report. It says, when they arrived, this is in Antioch in 27, and gathered the church together. So the church all came together eagerly to hear. Tell us, Barnabas, what's been happening? What was Cyprus like, Paul? I've heard that you've been into Antioch. Is it true that you were accused of being Zeus? Come on. And they were gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. They didn't boast of what they had done. They declared all that God had done. What's our first question, the catechism? What's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to what? To glorify God. And so they were quick to turn any, any attention from themselves and to point and say, it's God who did this. It says here, and then how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Think of that. It doesn't say Paul and Barnabas don't report to the church in Antioch that just a door opened. A door did open, but a door of faith. In other words, people's hearts were opened to the gospel and they put their faith in it. But it says a door of faith to the Gentiles. What was so important about this first mission trip was that large number of Gentiles, uncircumcised men, men and women who knew little of the Old Testament law of God, if you'd have said to them, what do you think, uh, well, Silas, I'm just taking that as a Greek name, what do you think about the book of Job? He'd said, well, I've never heard about the book of Job. Um, you know, they'd never heard of those things. And so there were new converts, and God had opened up a door, and God was no respecter of persons. He's now saving in large numbers Gentiles. And the gospel has carried on spreading the ripples ever since. So this is a, a major turning point. But they give this report, but guess what? Trouble is on the horizon again. 
Look at 15 and verse 1. But some men, this is now back in Antioch in Syria, they've now come away from the Galatian region, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, what? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? Unless you've been circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They're bringing into question now the salvation of people. And, and what a poisonous thing. Isn't the devil a meanie to stir up these false teachers, to bring such a message, to poison people's minds and say, never mind what Paul and Barnabas have preached, if you don't get circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so really we see how important the truth of the Bible is and of the gospel. And as we come to a close this morning, because this is the latest adversity that they now face, we thought the mission trip had finished, and in one respect it has, the journey's finished, but the gospel progress hasn't, and how important pure doctrine is for the church. There's nothing more than the devil's voice when you hear this, doctrine doesn't matter, doctrine divides and love unites, no true sound doctrine will unite with the love of God. And so the purity of the gospel was on the altar here and was being attacked about how people could be saved. And we praise God this morning that we are justified by grace, not our grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you can say, I am saved this morning, I've been forgiven you will never become more forgiven than when you were first born again. You'll never become more justified than when you were first saved. When God, as it were, put the hammer down and said, not guilty, enter into the kingdom of God. Nothing in our hands do we bring to God, but we simply cling to the cross of Jesus and don't let go. And also look over our shoulders at the empty tomb. And what do we do when we look over towards the tomb there? We say, praise God, he is risen. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow. We'll keep running the race. We'll keep pressing on until the day we pass the finishing line and we breathe our last and then enter into heaven for all eternity. Imagine that all eternity so as we close this morning let's think about one or two things to take away with us maybe some people will carry this on in family worshiping families but let's deliberate in the days ahead of the meaning of the word disciple one that's a learner and, and ask ourselves are we in a commitment to ongoing discipleship we see the connection here between the preaching of the gospel and discipleship. The two are not separate, they're together. We see the establishing of churches with the appointing of elders, but also made up of disciples who are committed. And we also see something else, don't we? We see this New Testament connectionalism. This is not an independency where there were just independent groups and said, no, no, 
We don't need anyone else. No, they needed the ministry of Paul. They needed the ministry of Barnabas. They needed help from one another. And we see they're, they're connected together as we see all across.